Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, a podcast for helping professionals who strongly believe in supporting their community and the humans who live there. I am your host, Dr. Sherry. And I'm your co-host, Brittany, the HR Specialist and Virtual Assistant. We are celebrating Women's History Month, and on today's episode, we have our second extraordinary woman who I am interviewing. Y'all heard the first one last week, my best friend, Brittany. Today, I recently met this guest on a professional academic level, and I think we're kind of kindred spirits. So as we got to know one another and we started sharing our professional and academic journeys, I just knew I had to have her on the podcast. So I ain't going to take a whole lot of time and be chitting and chatting y'all up. I would like to welcome to the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, Tamika Brewington. Hey, Tamika, welcome to the Passionate Stewardship Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for taking some time and, you know, rushing up that client to the sit and chit chat with us this evening. So before we get into who you are and how you show up in the community, how's that dissertation going? It is a work in process. I've made all the corrections I need to make to the IRB. And so now I'm just waiting for them to say go. Okay. Okay. I received that and I know that all too well. So you have our support over here and sending you all that good, positive juju and energy. All right. So now to the nitty gritty. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you show up for your community. A little bit about my background. I would say I've been doing community mental health for 20 years. I've worked with everybody. I've worked with kids. I've worked with adolescents. I've worked with adults. I am duly licensed. I work in mental health and substance abuse continuously. I would say my very first job, it was mental health and substance abuse. And that was not something that I was necessarily looking forward to. I come to the helping profession from the perspective of working out of a broken family. There's no other way to say it. Um, Mental health, undiagnosed, substance abuse, functioning addicts, and a very broken stepsister. And so recognizing that brokenness can be healed, I was always drawn to helping people. And so got to college, thought I was going to be a doctor. I had decided I was going to be an eye surgeon. And I got in chem two and physics two. And I was like, this is not it. <laughs> not it for me. I cannot have a life. I cannot live. I can't do this. And wind up taking a psychology class and fell in love with psychology, changed my major, and thought that I was going to save the world. And initially, I thought that I was going to save the world with kids. I wanted to work with adolescents, straight just adolescents. My very first job was with adolescents and actually loved it. I loved working with adolescents with mental health and experimentation with substance abuse. That's kind of my very first job in the field. But the organization that I was working for closed. And then I had to kind of figure out what the next step was going to be for me. And I wound up working in nonprofit with women who were HIV positive, mental health issues and substance abuse issues with small children. And that's kind of when my journey started understanding, trying to help individuals, 
learning what balance looked like, not working harder than the client. When I say I learned just about everything about how to help people at that nonprofit, uh, that's what I do. And so currently I show up in a community from the perspective of taking all of that knowledge, working in community mental health and working with working professionals. I have a group private practice called Real Talk Counseling. And then I have my own brand, TamikaBrunton.com, where I do concierge therapy. So it's funny that you say, you know, you got into this work almost by by happenstance, because I find that a lot of human services and social workers that, so human service professionals and do, and, and social workers that do this work, if you sat down and got to know them, like they just didn't stumble upon this work. Like there is a personal connection to this work. They have a personal history of trauma. They know someone with a personal history of trauma that kind of drew them to this, to the work that they do. Now, most of your years of experience is in mental health, substance use. Um, How did you find yourself kind of making that transition from the mental health, the substance use, which is one end of kind of the human services, social work spectrum to the professionals dealing with the life and career transition issue. Cause that's like, that's polar. Op- it can be polar opposites. They can go together. They can overlap, but that's kind of the opposite ends of things. It's different, but it's still the same. I found joy in helping people heal. Right. And so when I was working, I was working at the hospital and I was I had started my Ph.D. journey. I took a step back from being in management. I hadn't been in direct care in a long time. And I took away I took a step back from management and I said, oh, okay, I'm going to work at a hospital. I'm just going to be a therapist, you know, tunnel vision. I'm going to focus all my energy towards my Ph.D. And I got there and. This was not what I thought it was going to be. I was not Mm. happy at all. I was not happy at all. Mm. It was very numbers, productivity driven. And I feel like when you're working in a a human service field, we're here to help people. And it's not cookie cutter. It's it's not in black and white. And it's an ebb and flow. And at the time, I was working in a, a... a department that was substance abuse primary. And so substance abuse individuals are not predictable. And so you right. cannot adhere to those same guidelines that you would adhere to somebody who is not abusing a substance. So I just became very, very unsatisfied with the job. And so I was like, okay, I need to go ahead and open something. I'm going to do it my way. And when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and how I wanted it to look, I said, what can I do? Because if I'm going to continue to help the same people, then I can just go work for another community health agency. But if I'm going to branch out, what do I want that to look like? And so I thought about it and I said, there are a lot of individuals who have come from broken places and are successful, right? But they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily know how to get to the next level right? Or how to to live in the moment. They're operating at a higher function, but they're still broken. Their brokenness is just not manifesting mm, the way yeah. it is um, manifesting for people who are in community mental health. And so mm. that I decided that I wanted to work with um, working professionals who are in transition. And, you know, transition can look different for different people. I work with college students who are transitioning 
out of the home into college trying to find themselves. I work with other college individuals who are getting ready to graduate and getting their first job and trying to understand what it means to be in that work environment. And all of that is huge transition. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable. You know, people who have had um, mental health diagnosis that have never been treated and now they find themselves trying to figure that out and work. You know, I work with individuals who are high functioning, high profile individuals, but they're not happy in their home life, whether they're married or they want to be married, right? Trying to make that determination if they want to have a kid or if they can't have a kid, you know, are they going to pursue other options? Feeling comfortable in themselves, not having good self-esteem, not having self-confidence, and then it's impacting your work environment. You feel like you're being bullied in the workplace. You're socially isolated, so you have anxiety with trying to meet people, or you've had a negative relationship that you have not been able to heal from. So it was literally working with the same type of people, just in a different space, and the acuity level wasn't as high as what I was already doing it's interesting that you talk about the transition like into college and out of the college I remember when we were my husband and I when we watched like the NFL drafts and the NBA drafts and how you watch these young men you know come out of high school and go into the NBA or come out of high school and go into the NFL and how they come from very impoverished areas and then all of a sudden they have all of this fame and all of this money and and there is no, there is no in between. There's no in between from me, like literally living off of food stamps in an impoverished area, like literally like six months ago to now and I'm signing a multi-million dollar contract. And not knowing how to process and how to be present to all of that. So I can see how what you provide is so absolutely necessary, but not just for athletes, but, you know, for anybody who has such a shift in life, like overnight. I mean, I remember when I moved here from D.C. a couple years ago, like it was a hard transition. Good God, it was a hard transition. Like I never experienced culture shock until I came to North Carolina, like coming from Washington, D.C. and then coming to North Carolina and working in a very rural area of North Carolina. It's like, oh, y'all say that down here. Oh, that's, that's not accepted down here. Oh, what they do that at? Like, babe. Like, this how they living down here? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And when I started seeing a therapist, that's what she was saying. It's like, you know, you are having a hard time with the transition because it's like, it, it was just, it was hard. So I think what the area of your focus right now, I think it's just, it's spot on for life. I can think of so many areas that someone could come and sit down and process with you, like so many different areas. And instead of putting the band-aid of substance abuse and alcoholism on it, because I think, you know, that's what substance abuse and alcoholism, it's a band-aid of something so much bigger. Like they're not putting that band-aid on it. They're reaching out to someone like you to try to process them and walk with them through something like that. Do you find that the topic of life and career transition issues 
is an area that has become increasingly exacerbated in the lives of people since COVID? Yes. When I started my journey in a private practice, we had been in business a year. And it was myself in a group private practice with two other clinicians. By the end of the first year of COVID, I had hired four other clinicians because we could not up with the demand. There's a lot of people who separate work and home. And so when when everybody was quote unquote working remotely and working from home, because I want to tell you that none of the people that I work with were laid off. Everybody transitions from work to home. So I didn't have a drop in census or anything from that perspective. We just, we already had telehealth embedded in our practice. So it was just a matter of sending releases saying, this is what we're going to be doing and everything. But a lot Mm -hmm. of people could not function because one, they were used to leaving work at work and home at home. And now with work being integrated in the home life, they couldn't function from that perspective. The kids are home. They don't know how to talk and or teach their kids. (laughs) and still be online working and then i had who had older kids where it wasn't a problem but then they found themselves working 11 12 1 2 3 o'clock in the morning because they were working taking a break running some errands eating dinner and then going back (laughs) and they were working too much and didn't have any space in between. A lot of people who had probably mild diagnosis of anxiety or mild depression started, it ramped up because there's all of this uncertainty and unknown, the isolation, you know, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fears and not just being able to manage, not knowing what was next, what's going to happen next. It was a lot of that. It was, we couldn't keep up it. At one point I was seeing like 50 people a week and I was like, I wow, you know, and now that's not five days a week. I see people seven days a week. So it was 50 people, seven days a week. Mm. That's still seven days a week. That's still a lot though. That's a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> It was a lot. And I was just like this. I can't, you know, and it was just steady referrals, referrals on top of referrals. So, yeah, it was a lot. So it's a lot, Um, but it's also I mean, it's a blessing that you were able to keep keep working during that time when so many, you know, people kind of, you know, either had to close their practices or close their businesses down because, you know, the decline in people showing up for work, number one. But it's amazing how, you know, this is one of those services that was able to transition to teletherapy. So the next steps is the concierge therapy, which I think is an awesome concept. Can you speak more to what is concierge therapy? Concierge therapy um, came out of me being celebrity adjacent. (laughs) Celebrity adjacent? That's the running joke I have with my sisters. Um, But it was one of those scenes where some people who are very high profile don't feel comfortable coming into a building that says counseling or letting people know that they, but they need the services, right? And this, this was birthed before COVID. So now telehealth is a thing, but there are still 
people who don't necessarily want to do telehealth. They want the discretion. They want you. And so I was like, I should start something where I um, promote myself being able to come for you, come to you in the comforts of your home. Or if you're traveling and session, you know, I could come to you wherever you are on location. Um, tailored to that particular person's need. So it's not necessarily a 50 minute session. It could be a 90 minute session. It could be a group session. It could be a family session. It is whatever is going on with that person and it's tailored toward them. So that's why I use the term concierge because they create the space and environment for what it is that they need with their hectic lives. It sounds so fancy. Like, um, can you call up concierge therapy, please? I need my therapist. It sounds so fancy. It's so fancy. And I love it. It sounds so bougie and fancy. I just love it. Like, uh, Dr. Brewington's coming on me, coming with me to Dubai. I love it. I love it. I love it. I have no problem. Trying to speak into existence. You say you have no problem with it? <laughs> with you, yes. I can't. I love it. So I think Brittany had a question. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Britt. So since you do provide such a fancy service, um, how do you find time to get everything done for your clients and then be able to handle the time that you need for your extra ventures that you have? Because you're running two practices. So you have the concierge therapy and your very first practice. Right. And then you're on a, then aren't you a, sitting on board right and you're teaching yep and you're writing dissertation and that's a whole job in itself (laughs) it's way too much it's way too much way too much i would not recommend this for anyone but i am definitely one of those people that's a go-getter and my schedule is very organized one of the things that i can say that god brought to me was a husband that is the wind up under my wings he handles my schedule and he knows that if it's not on my calendar it is not going to take place i mean he takes (laughs) calls he takes the consultations he takes the referrals he knows the type of clients that gravitate to me and what i need um so if it's not someone that is conducive you know he he gets all of it. He gets the vision and the focus. And then I have pockets where this is where this time is available. And this is where that time is available. You know, I know my schedule with reference to the students and I know when I teach. So that's all automatically off limits and blocked off. And then I know when I can see clients in my group practice. And then I know the times that I need for my concierge clients that I see currently. Right. And so it's just, it just flows. It just flows. So what are you teaching? I teach in the health and human services department. And so right now I teach in addiction and recovery. So I teach individuals who want to be substance abuse counselors. Okay. Oh, wow. So what signs and symptoms can a person be aware of, especially in the human service, social work field that indicate that there may be embarking on a life or career transition? You know, I personally speak about burnout, and when I work with clients and resource depletion, when I work with clients. So from your perspective, because this is something that you, that this is your expertise. So from your perspective, 
with indications for a human service professional or a social worker outside of burnout and maybe the resource depletion that indicates maybe there is some life and career transition that they may be experiencing. Um, When I think about career, the first thing I think about is just not enjoying the job. Individuals who work in the human service field, we come to this field because we want to help people. And so if you're going into work, you don't want to get there. I mean, it's taking everything that you need besides being burnt out, but just not enjoying what you're doing, feeling stuck and not really sure what you need to do. You know, you're trying to figure out, do I want to stay in as an independent contributor or am I looking for leadership? You know, do I need a challenge? You, you start to feel uncomfortable. When, when I think about from a personal perspective and going through a life transition, it really is the phase that you're in. You know, am I coming out of young adulthood and I need to differentiate myself from my parents and become an autonomous adult? Can I set boundaries or am I shrinking and letting my parents still tell me what to do, even though I'm in their house? Right. And not feeling comfortable about that or finding that I'm limiting my space and my time with them because I'm tired of them telling me what to do. So that's one thing. And then, you know, if you've transitioned out of that and you're um, a young adult working in a professional space, you know, you could have went to school for one thing and you've worked in that. And now I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this forever. So now what am I supposed to do? Because I got this degree. I got this student loan. What I got bills. What am I supposed to do? You know, and trying to identify what that next step is going to be. Some people have gotten out of school and they're just like, oh, I'm going to find a job. But they have no idea how to find a job, you know, and so they take the first job that they get. And now they're stuck and it's not something that they want to do. So transitioning into what it is and focusing in on a career. From a social perspective, I find that a lot of people transition and their friends, their core group of friends have to transition and evolve too, especially on a healing journey and you're more self-aware and know what it is that you need because if you come from a broken home you may have friends that are treating you or impacting your life the same way your family of origin is and so as you evolve and recognize some of that dysfunction and what you don't want around you letting that core friendship go letting those people go and making space for other people to come in a lot of adults don't want to let those friends go they don't want to let them go, but they also recognize that they don't feel like they want to be around those friends. And so that's another way that you can feel stuck. And then relationships. Relationships is really big. And you really have to kind of understand, for me, I tell my clients that if you have not healed and learned what went wrong in that past relationship, you're going to repeat it. That residue is still on you and you're going to connect and align to the people that are going to put you in a position to get hurt again. And so having them take time to slow down and figure out what went wrong, what it is that I truly want and have a desire for, as opposed to what I'm attracted to in a relationship is very big because they will get on those apps and be dating in two days. (laughs) And you date the same person. Swipe, swipe, swipe. You date the same person. Swipe, swipe, swipe. That just sounds like the other person that we just got rid of. And they're like, oh, 
oh, it's different. And it's the exact same situation. So relationships and then trying to navigate, do I want to be in a relationship? Do I just want to socially date? Am I comfortable in that space? How am I showing up? you know am i being authentic because a lot of people give you their representative and so they're representing that is not authentic and you get in this relationship and in six months you unhappy or you like how did i get here i don't want to be with this person anymore you know and so really taking the time to dig deep into what it is another transition is perspective operating from your perspective and recognizing what your perspective is and recognizing that your partner has a perspective too. And so if you haven't done the work, your past dysfunction, your past relationships cloud your perspective. And so you could be giving this person all this smoke and they don't even deserve it because you're looking at them through the lens of the person that or the people who've hurt you. And so Really trying to focus in on what's going on so that you don't keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And I find that it's not finite. It's ever evolving. And that's the other thing that I have to tell my clients is that, you know, okay, so you came to me for this. And so we're going to work on this. But that doesn't mean that the journey stops when you're good because something else is going to happen or a scale can come off of your eye. And then there's something else that you need to work on. And you just need to recognize that just because you work through one thing doesn't mean that you're good. It's ever evolving. And so that's kind of some of the things that I see personally is family of origin stuff, figuring out who they are in a professional space and then figuring out who they are in a personal. Those are the three core things that always come up in the um, with the clients that I see. That's good stuff. So besides hiring you, <laughs> what are three vital, tangible things a person can do if they are experiencing life and career transition issues? I would say that they really need to take stock of their professional and their personal life. And am I happy? If nothing changes today, would I be happy living in this space from a work perspective and from a personal perspective? And so if I'm not happy, what is it that I want to see? What is it that I want to see? The other thing I would say, the second one would be, am I living in the present? Because some people are so busy looking backwards and focusing on the hurt and the pain that they're not living in their present tense, you know? And then the other part of that is that, or are you living in the future? Well, if I can just get to next year, then I'm going to be good. And you're always focusing in on how to get or how to control the narrative to get to this space that you think that will make you happy as opposed to what's going on with you right now. And then the third thing would be, am I ready to change? Am I ready to do what's necessary to actually change and live the life that I say that I want to have? That's real talk. That's good. That's so <laughs> that last one was kind of heavy though. No, but that was that's, that's that good. last one was heavy. That was a word. Yeah. That was a word. Real talk counseling. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do for self-care? 
because between running two practices and dissertation and before we jumped on this evening to record, Brittany was saying she got all the alphabets behind her name. So clearly. Yes, no, it was letter, comma, letter, letter, comma, letter, letter, comma, comma, letter. You've been at it for a minute. So what do you do for self-care? Because I know firsthand it's a lot. It is. It is. Trying to it is. juggle it all. So what do you do to take care of Tamika? Okay. So right now what I do is Tamika gets up, depending on what's going on with the dissertation world, I get up between three and four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. I'm either writing or- That ain't I'm- self-care. That's torturous. <laughs> <laughs> what time do you go to bed? I go to bed between 9, 9.30 and 10. And I don't okay. need that hours. caveat. When I was in my master's program, I worked third shift. So Mm. if I'm up, I'm up, you know, it's not one of those things where I'm not a morning person. I am definitely a morning person and an overnight person. And so then after that, about five o'clock, I leave the house. I go to the gym. I have a trainer. Okay. So I do a 45 minute workout. And then depending on what time my first session is um, with a client, I'll go do yoga after that. So okay. I'm walking into a space refreshed, I'm exercised, I've got my chi, I'm balanced, and then I'm going. We do meal prep, so I, I don't have to think about what we're eating. We do meal prep on Sunday, and so our breakfast, lunch, and dinner is already planned out. I already know it's packaged before I leave the house. I leave the house with 12 bags, workout clothes, <laughs> uh, clothes for to see work clothes, <laughs> computer everything everything goes with me and then I knit I started knitting in my master's program and so that is a very relaxing thing for me can I can just sit and just do like this and listen to something if I'm listening to a book or you know just doing like that that is very relaxing to me I try to get out with my girlfriends at least once or twice a month just to go even if it's just a brunch we do brunch we talk my nieces and nephews. I like talking to them. I like spo- spoiling them. I am one of those people where gifts are my love language. Okay. So I'm forever sending something in the mail. I literally just told my baby sister, I'm I was like, I mailbox this week. She was like, for me? I was like, yes, just for you. Uh, check your mailbox. Um, and so I'm always sending, I'll create a reason to send a present, you know, things from that perspective. And I feel really good. The only thing I feel like I don't do that I would like to do is just read for pleasure. I'm still reading for school. I but was I, getting ready to ask, what's the last thing you read for pleasure? But I can imagine everything is peer-reviewed articles right now. Right, right. <laughs> um, I also, I get a massage every seven to ten days. I go okay. to the doctor twice a week. I get my nails done every two weeks. And so I do a lot. So you make sure you take that time. I do. That's I do. good. Okay. It, it makes Because I think self-care is one of those things that people just, they run it in the ground. But it sounds as if you intentionally know how important self-care is because you are doing a lot. Right. I do a lot. And I make sure that it's incorporated, like it's on my schedule. Yoga is on there. Chiropractor is on there. Massage is on there. Nails is on there. Anything that I have done, it is on there. It's on the calendar and I just keep it going. And also when you work and and do what you love, it doesn't feel like it. It's not work. It's really yeah. not. It's not work. I agree. I agree. 
So I have two questions. From my personal experience, I was a stay-at-home mom for about eight and a half years. What advice would you give, especially a a Black stay-at-home mom, that's someone that didn't have any education prior to being a stay-at-home mom? What kind of advice would you give or how would you work with that person thinking about reentering the workforce? I would start looking at the type of work that they've done in the past. We would take a look at just because you're a stay-at-home mom doesn't mean you don't have transferable skills. So are you active in the community? Were you organizing the student um, cookie drive? You know, because that's project management right there and dealing with a lot of personalities. So what is it that you have been doing? What are you thinking about doing going back into the workforce? You know, do you need something flexible or are the kids out of the house? You know, what would be important to you to have in that job? And then we would probably do some personal inventories to kind of learn what your personality style is, where you lean from a career perspective. And then we would would explore the type of jobs that would be meaningful. And then we would try to get that person connected from a network perspective to kind of talk to somebody and say, hey, okay, so you work in this field. I'm thinking about it. What are the pros and cons about that? You can reach out to someone on LinkedIn and be like, "Can can we do like a 15, 20 minute call and tell me about your job, what you like about it and what you don't so that that person can make an informed decision decision and and make sure that whether they have education or not in that, can they actually break into that and would that make them happy? Where were you at a couple years ago? Come on. And then my last (laughs) question, (laughs) when you are meeting a client for the first time, what is some things that they would need to bring? Would it be their physical resume and cover letter education, or is it just like a one-on-one conversation just to get an understanding of the person? Okay. So if it is a person in my group private practice, we have a form that they fill out and it's in a paperwork form and it asks them questions what what made you make the appointment? Have you had counseling before? What is it that you want to get out of counseling? What are you um, working towards? You know, what is it? And then if it's someone from a concierge perspective, they fill out a questionnaire and then I schedule a conversation with that person to see what's going on, whether if it's that person or that person's agent saying, hey, you to come and talk to this person about blah, 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 blah. And so then I explain the process and then we set up a time and then I have pretty much an assessment and a a dialogue with that person about how we're going to be working through what they're working through. Okay. Oh yeah. Cause I forgot you work with the fancy people. You know what I'm saying? Like Like an agent. Regular common folk. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So once the PhD is obtained, what's next? Are you still going to be in 100% in both practices or are you going to be focused on just growing the concierge therapy? Once the PhD is done, I will be taking a step back and not seeing as many people in my group private practice because it's pretty it's, it's pretty self-sufficient right now. Um, so I would, would really reduce that because I need to be available to travel if needed. I'm claiming that. Of course. Um, I know that's right. We're claiming it for you. <laughs> claiming that. And then I really want to focus in on the con- concierge clientele. And then I'm um, in the process of developing some workshops. And um, uh, 
workshops and consultations for corporate America. That's one place that I haven't really been into. So that's the next phase. And so I'll probably phase out of teaching or only do teaching online if I if I continue with the university. But I really want to hone into concierge and I want to go and tap into that corporate C-suite level clientele and do workshops and things from that perspective. High functioning people who are dealing with anxiety and depression and are thriving to a certain degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where I want to go. This was so, 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 so good. I am so glad that our schedules aligned. Now, you got to promise me one thing. When you get that PhD and walk across that stage, because like we said a couple weeks ago, you going to walk. <laughs> Hook a crook, you going to yeah. walk. Not hooker. If you got to walk across the street, you going to walk. <laughs> You got to come back to the podcast when you are Dr. Yeah. Tamika Brewington so we can catch yes. you on With your hat. Come on. With yeah. the hat. Right. You got you to gotta wear the chef's hat. The, the funny the, hat, as it. everybody calls it. Yeah. Exactly. Your tassel won't move. The tassel is stuck to the hat. Yeah. It's stuck yeah. to the hat. The tassel won't move. But you got to come with your, with your hat on. You won't have to wear your, 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 your robe because it's hot. With but you got to wear You got to wear the hat so we can catch most, up. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. Awesome. 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 Now, if listeners want to get in touch with you, are you accepting new clients in your practice? No. Okay. I am accepting concierge clients. I bet you are fancy pants. Yes. I'm accepting <laughs> concierge clients, but my, my, my caseload, the only way that I take a client in the group private practice is that it is a personal referral from someone that I've already seen. I okay. don't have the capacity for new people right now. I can imagine from, from with everything. With the type of work that I do. Also with the clients that I have. Okay. So if someone wants to get in touch with you on yes. the concierge side, how would they get in touch with you? They could go to my website, TamikaBrewington.com. Okay. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, Tamika Brewington on LinkedIn and at TW Brewington on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tamika. Thank you. Thank you this has been a really, really good conversation. I am so happy our paths crossed. I am so looking forward to what you do for the world and becoming a doctor and joining this awesome club of Black women who are doctors. I'm waiting for Britt to join that club. Just put it out there. <laughs> I don't want the stress. That's right. Tell her, come on over to the crazy side. <laughs> that would be a day. Mm. This week's exceptional woman who paved the way and elevated, giving new meaning to the saying, I am woman, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams has come synonymous with voting accessibility and turnout, making history by becoming the first African-American woman to hold positions in state and national politics. Abrams is now one of the most prominent African-American female politicians in the United States. Her parents were big on education and said you could only miss school if you had a doctor's note and a surgical scar. Abrams credits the public school system with saving her siblings. Her siblings include a professor of anthropology, 
a federal judge, an evolutionary biologist, and a social worker. After high school, Abrams matriculated to Spelman College. During her freshman year, she led a protest against the Rodney King verdict and co-founded the Students for African American Empowerment Group. She also attended a protest on the steps of the Georgia State Capitol, where they burned the state flag, which at the time was dominated by the Confederate battle flag. Abrams maintained Confederate symbols should not be in public places of honor. The Georgia state flag was changed in 2003, but Stone Mountain, the largest Confederate monument in the world, still stands just outside of Atlanta, and Abrams has called for its removal. After graduating from Spelman College, Magnum Cum Laude, with a BA in Interdisciplinary Studies, and was named a Harry S. Truman Scholar, Abrams' education did not stop with her BA. She received a master's degree from Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and her Juris Doctorate from Yale University. She then returned to Atlanta as a tax attorney and was appointed the deputy city attorney for Atlanta. In 2006, Abrams was elected to the Georgia House and quickly gained her reputation for bipartisanship. She became the House Minority Leader in 2010 and the first African-American woman to do so in Georgia. Abrams advocated increasing educational opportunities and promoting economic security. Inspired by her brother's experience with mental illness and addiction, she also called for criminal justice reform and expanded Medicaid. While still a member of the Georgia House, she created a voter registration nonprofit called the New Georgia Project, which helped complete 86,000 new voter applications, many of whom came from voters of color. Abrams rose to national prominence when she ran for governor of Georgia in 2018. While she lost that race by about 55,000 votes, her candidacy was historic in and itself when she won the Democratic primary in that race and became the first African-American woman to receive a major party's nomination for governor. During her campaign, she focused on bringing new voters to the polls, an extension of her work with the New Georgia Project. The race was also historic for other reasons. There was a series of allegations of voter suppression, particularly those targeted at suppressing the votes of African-Americans. Abrams continued to advocate for the help for voter registration and founded the Fair Fight Action in 2018. Fair Fight is an organization created to address the issues of voter suppression. Abrams is credited for being one of the major forces behind the Democrats' win in Georgia in the 2020 presidential Senate races. Abrams continued to serve as the face of voting advocacy around the country. She has started and inspired many organizations that work to register and turn out voters, particularly young voters and voters of color. Abrams has received numerous awards for her work, including the John F. Kennedy New Frontier Award, the Friend of Labor Award from the Georgia AFL-CIO, and others for her public servant work. In February 2021, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Abrams also serves on numerous boards for educational and nonprofit organizations. Stacey Abrams, because of you, we are. 
Thank you so much, Tamika, for joining us on the Passionate Stewardship Podcast. And remember, self-care is health care and kindness is free. So do me a favor and be kind to somebody today. I love you for listening. Thank you, best friend. Bye. Thank you.